Hello and welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host Kevin and I'm very glad to have you with me today. Well, we are all familiar with the story of the Holocaust and the mass genocide committed by the Third Reich. What you may never have heard of, however, is the story of the Polish patriot Witold Pilecki, who volunteered to enter the Auschwitz concentration camp as a prisoner in order to observe and report on the atrocities he witnessed. My guest today is Jack Fairweather, a journalist and former war correspondent whose new book, The Volunteer, One Man, an Underground Army, and the Secret Mission to Destroy Auschwitz, shines a light on Witold Pilecki's first-hand reporting that had previously been hidden in Soviet Union archives for decades. Before we get started, I just want to give a word to those who like to listen to the show with little ears around. You may want to consider putting on a different episode and coming back to this one later. Since we are talking about the Holocaust today, the conversation does get a little grim and graphic at times. Lastly, I'd like to invite you to help me with the show. We don't do any kind of advertising here at the Can't Make This Up History podcast, so the way we build the audience is all word of mouth. If you can spare a few seconds, please open your Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever app you're using to listen to this and give the show a positive rating. If you're feeling really ambitious, you can even leave a review and share what you like about the show. I'd love to give your review a shout out on a future episode. All right, now let's dive into The Volunteer with Jack Fairweather. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Hello, Jack Fairweather. Welcome. Hi, Kevin. How are you today, sir? I'm very good. And yourself? Uh, Doing quite well. Thank you. Thank you for coming on today. If you could um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, As I understand it, you have a long career as a war correspondent, correct? That's right. I uh, reported from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, for the best part of a decade for the Daily Telegraph and then the Washington Post. All right, and you are the author of a new book uh, that we're going to talk about today called The Volunteer, One Man, an Underground Army, and the Secret Mission to Destroy Auschwitz. Um, How did you discover this story? I had just left the Middle East um, and was mulling over my experiences there when I bumped into another war reporter friend and he, by coincidence, had just come back from a reporting assignment to Auschwitz. It was an anniversary story and he'd learned there about a resistance cell in the camp and the very idea that there could be resistance in Auschwitz was completely um, shocking to me. Um, I thought of the camp, I think many people do, as this place of just mass slaughter and it seemed such a shocking new idea that I knew I had to find out more. And um, a year or two later, Vitor Poletsky, the hero of my book, one of his reports was finally translated into English. And it was just so compelling and captivating, yet filled with gaps. And um, it just, it seemed like a mystery that needed to be, needed to be explored. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you did explore this because this was uh, a very uh, fascinating book to read. I was not familiar with uh, Vitold Pilecki's story at all 
um, and the idea that someone would volunteer to go to Auschwitz is um, truly unbelievable. It is, it is mind-boggling. Um, you're right, Paletsky was a volunteer. When he began his mission, Auschwitz had only just opened. This is in, in uh, the summer of 1940, um, less than a year into the war. And the camp was originally opened by the Germans as a concentration camp for Polish political prisoners. That's one thing I had to learn in the, approaching the story, that it wasn't initially a place for extermination of Jews. In fact, the Nazis didn't have an idea about mass extermination at that stage. Um, it was a camp for Polish political prisoners. It was still a place of incredible brutality. And those were the rumors that were reaching the underground in Warsaw and made the resistance there think we need to send someone in there to find out more, to organize a resistance and you know stage a breakout or an uprising, certainly send us information that we can pass on to the allies about what's happening in the camp. So they turned to Paletsky. He was 39 years old. He was a farmer. He was a member of uh, the Polish Reserve Forces. He probably would not have become one of World War II's most extraordinary heroes, but for but for the invasion of Nazi Germany. And um, this pushed him into this part, the resistance in Warsaw initially, and then presented with this extraordinary challenge. Yeah, let's yeah. back up a little bit and talk about um, his uh, background before getting to, to the camp. Um, what can you tell us about uh, Witold's uh, patriotism and his experience in the face of the Nazi blitzkrieg against Poland? Yeah, he was one of those Polish soldiers who, as mobilization was sounded uh, across Poland, took to his horse like other members of the military. It seems rather extraordinary to think of, but he, he rode into battle um, and came up against uh, the Blitzkrieg um, a couple of hundred miles from the German-Polish border. And his men were completely decimated in half an hour of encountering uh, the German tanks. Um, other units of, along the Polish defenses did not, did not fare well. And Paletsky was left scrambling desperately back to Warsaw as the, as the Germans broke through Polish lines. And it was a story repeated you know, across the different fronts of this German uh, invasion. And the Poles capitulated in, in a, few, a few weeks. Um, in fact, it you know, reminded me uh, in thinking about it of the, the American military versus the Iraqis that I had um, personally experienced. Um, you know, it was a huge mismatch of firepower. Mm -hmm. uh, he carried on in the woods as a sort of guerrilla fighter for a while, um, but ultimately he realized that the war was lost and he and some of his men headed towards Warsaw um, in November, a couple of months into the war to begin the resistance. You, you get the sense as you write that he, he at no point gives up, but he, you know, starts thinking long term and um, he starts organizing um, the organ, uh, the underground as a, as a um, subversive organization. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so let's just picture the scene. I mean, this is in Warsaw 
Um, the country, the city is devastated by the war, huge piles of rubble everywhere. People are starving on the streets. The Germans have begun, begun deporting tens of thousands of Polish citizens from areas they had annexed directly to the Reich, and they were turning up in Warsaw on cattle trucks, frozen. Uh, disease was rampant. There was not much food. It was one of the coldest winters in living memory. Um, Paletsky met up with a small group in an, in an apartment one night and said, we are going to fight until death to overcome the Germans. Um, now, of course, there was a huge mismatch between Paletsky and his small group and the the, the power and the scale of the of the German occupation, um, but they started reaching out. Paletsky was a recruiter. It was a obviously a, a real skill that he had from the uh, from the beginning. Just this ability to connect with people, to make the right judgment as to who could join the underground. And they started to grow. Other groups sprung up around the city, and bit by bit, the underground began to form this quite cohesive organization um, that was able to, I think in the first instance, just tell other Poles that, yeah, we can fight back against the Germans. Don't give up hope. Um, they were able to provide help and assistance to one uh, to each other. And they also started organizing. Um, at that stage of the war, they were waiting for the big showdown, what they thought would be the big showdown between Germany and Britain and France. And they wanted to time any operations or actions uh, for for when that battle um, resumed on the Western Front. Um, and of course, it was a very devastating blow for, for every Pole when the German blitzkrieg just rolled through Western Europe and France surrendered, the Brits were evacuated from Dunkirk, and suddenly Hitler was even more powerful and in, in control of continental Europe. That's when the, the focus of the underground started to shift more towards intelligence gathering. They realized that this war was going to go on for a long time, and what they needed to do was keep telling the Allies what was happening in Poland, keep keep the attention on Poland and in a bid to bring resources and uh, bring assistance to the country. Otherwise, they would just get lost in the in the general tumult of uh, of the war. And that was the sort of background towards the underground leadership, thinking about Auschwitz, this new concentration camp, this place of you know great brutality that they wanted to find out more about because they hoped that by sending Paletsky there, he would send them a report that could they be then passed on to the to the Brits and it could sort of raise awareness and maybe lead to uh, some form of intervention. And, um, you know, Paletsky by that stage had proven himself to be a very talented recruiter in the in the underground and um, he seemed like the man for the job. You touched on one of his assets. He he really needed to be a good judge of character, didn't he? He really did. I mean, it was a feature of Nazi rule that they were trying to break down the bonds of what made Polish society cohesive. They were pitting Pol uh, ethnic Catholic Poles against Jews, um, ethnic German citizens of Poland against 
Catholic poles and you know they were trying to create a racial hierarchy which you know classic divide and rule situation and and that's something Paletsky felt very strongly about um you know he really pushed to for the underground to be as inclusive as possible to remind people of the bonds that connected them and that's why I think in in some uh some extent he w- he was a good recruiter because he found ways to connect with people at this at this basic level appealing to their patriotism appealing to their sense of being polish but also just giving them his trust you know in this time of you know turmoil where families were being sort of paid to inform on one another the gestapo were getting their grips into society um, the ability of Paletsky to, you know, to go against that grain was, you know, it was very powerful and it, and it was what allowed him in some ways to uh, to begin his work in Auschwitz when he got there. Well, wh- whether he wanted to be or not, uh, he found himself becoming an intelligence operative, a, a spy, essentially. So how and when did he decide to volunteer uh, to go undercover into Auschwitz. So in that summer of 1940, when the Auschwitz opened, um, the underground turned to him and proposed the operation to him. The idea was that he would infiltrate the camp by walking into a German roundup. So there'd been a big crackdown uh, in Warsaw, in which the Gestapo and SS were dragging military-age men off the streets and sending a good number to Auschwitz. Others were going to forced labor. Some were getting shot. And, you know, the idea was here was a way to enter Auschwitz as a prisoner. Now, of course, it was a somewhat risky idea. I mean, who knows what would happen during a roundup. Often in these situations, Poles were just summarily executed there and then. Um, You know, Paletsky knew it was an extremely dangerous mission. And of course, not just for himself, but for his family. His family had moved from their home in eastern Poland, which was occupied by the Soviet Union at that point, and were living outside Warsaw um, at her at his mother-in-law's house, and um, you know they would be in danger. So Paletsky, he got his informants told him there was a big roundup planned in August of 1940, and he missed it um, as he dwelt on this really difficult mission. And um, it wasn't until September that he was ready, that he informed the underground, um, I'm going to do this mission. Um, he had adopted an alias, um, so his his name was disguised, and that gave a little protection to his family. Um, some of his close friends by that point had been caught elsewhere and sent to Auschwitz, so there was a sort of personal connection to the camp. But I think above all, it was just, you know, here was a mission that had to be done. He wasn't a guy to sort of pass the buck on to someone else. They had turned to him to to do the job, and he was ready to do it. And at this point, he gets rounded up, as he intended. And what does he quickly discover about camp life there in Auschwitz? 
Well, let, well let's let's just dwell on that on that moment one more. I mean, he he realised that the roundup was going to be in the Zollibor district of Warsaw, which happened to be where his sister-in-law and and her three-year-old nephew lived. And so the night before the scheduled roundup, he went to stay with them. And the next morning, uh, pre-dawn, there was a bang on the door. It was the building caretaker announcing that the Germans were um, had blocked off the streets and were taking men from the apartments. Of course, Pilecki knew that. In fact, he was already dressed and ready. Um, there were shouts and gunshots from the streets. So then the Germans were in the stairwell of the apartment. Um, Pilecki turned at this point, to his three-year-old nephew, uh, whose teddy bear had fallen on the floor, which he picked up and gave to him, which was just one of those moments um, that really spoke to me about how Paletsky was able to reach beyond himself in these moments of crisis. Just when you think he should be, you know, all wrapped up in his own nerves, he found that, found that sort of quality within him to think about the three-year-old boy. And the door burst open, and he stepped into captivity. And three days later, he arrived in Auschwitz. Describes it in his later report, the arrival. Uh, and he says it was like leaving the known world behind and entering just a whole new dimension. And the cattle cart arrived uh, about 10 p.m. in the evening. The doors were thrown open and uh, prisoners were dragged from the carts, beaten and punched on the ground. Paletsky describes how 10 prisoners were lined up and shot right there and then, they were forced through the gates uh, into the roll call square, then to be stripped and shaved and given numbers instead of names. And Paletsky quickly realized in the next few days that just surviving in the camp was going to be the first challenge. Um, prisoners were made to work these very hard labor details on starvation rations, constantly in danger of breaking the many rules of the camp and being beaten. Um, there were dozens who died each day and their bodies were dragged at the evening roll call over to the crematorium to be burnt. It was a truly grim, terrifying experience. And, you know, it makes Paletsky's ability to look within himself and realize that he had to start fighting back all the more extraordinary. When he first arrives in Auschwitz, his, his focus is on surviving. But it's not long before he starts organizing a resistance cell within the camp. How did he go about building that network? So one of the things I was able to find in the research was this extraordinary testimony by a prisoner who describes the scene when Paletsky came up to him one evening, very early into his time in the camp to recruit him. And I love this scene, not least because it's so rare to find, you know, the, the act of recruiting captured in a testimony, but also because there was a certain truth to it. Paletsky went up to him, took him away from the group and told him about the undergrounds and the other prisoner, so young 27-year-old man, 
looked at him and said, are you nuts? Just look at us. We are battered and bruised, starving. We are in no position to resist. Um, but then something extraordinary happens that I think it sort of captures the secret of the underground. And that was that this young man, his name was Con, uh, began to see that Paletsky entrusting him with the secret of the underground was really trusting him with the secret of his life. Con could have just walked over to one of the prisoner functionaries that, who ran the camp or an SS guard and say, oi, this guy's uh, you know, causing trouble and have gone on a loaf of bread or you know, some special dispensation. But he didn't because he realized that that act of trust by Paletsky showed that something greater than themselves could exist in the camp. And that was, in fact, more precious to them, to him, than uh, a loaf of bread. And it's an extraordinary fact, actually, that, you know, for Paletsky's two and a half years in the underground, uh, which grew and developed um, many men by the time he left the camp, uh, there is no evidence that I've discovered of any one of those recruits uh, denouncing him or turning against him. Um, and, um, you know, that speaks again to this judgment that he had and those that he chose, but I think also speaks to the fact that prisoners, no matter how, you know, in this very dark moment in their lives and very dark moment in human history, needed more than ever the sort of ideals that Paletsky offered them through the underground. Well, right. Every every time he approaches somebody new, there there's the risk, like you said, we'll just run off and report something to get some food. Um, he for sure has that concern, and later on, there were the SS did twig that the the scale of the underground and did begin inserting um, plants and spies because they were somewhat aware of it, right? Yeah, I mean they they. Felt in the beginning that um, from their experience of other camps that there would be prisoner gangs and, um, you know, they couldn't conceive of, you know, the Poles, these untermensch, you know, these subhumans being able to aspire to some grand resistance. They just figured that they were, you know, stealing food and bartering in the, in the square. So they didn't take it seriously, which, you know, suited Paletsky just fine as he, you know, began to um, turn the tables on them and really start his sabotage operations. So as you mentioned before, the, the primary mission was really to observe and, and get the word out. And so what can you tell us about the reports that the underground began producing and smuggling them to London? Paletsky's primary mission in going to the camp was to try and report on what was happening there. Of course, that presented him with this huge challenge. How do you get a message out of Auschwitz? Escape uh, was incredibly difficult. They were constantly guarded. And what was more, any attempt led to reprisals against every prisoner in the camp, these terrible standing roll calls that could last for 24 hours. Very, very brutal. And, you know, Paletsky realized he didn't want to expose other prisoners to that. So um, he kept his eye out and realized that very rarely a prisoner uh, would be released if their families paid the right bribes in Warsaw. And he found one prisoner and approached him 
uh, through one of his men and recruited him and gave him an oral message to take to the underground. And um, it was truly one of those sort of goosebump moments during research when my um, my you know my close uh, my translator called me up from London and said, Jack, I found Paletsky's reports, which, you know, believed to have long been lost, um, but she had found it in a London archive and it was the words that Paletsky told that prisoner um, to take to Warsaw, which were then smuggled across occupied Europe all the way to London. And the message itself was pretty extraordinary. And this is what he, Paletsky, had to say in October 1940. He said, please, Polish government allies, for the love of God, bomb this camp, even if it means killing everyone in it, because that will be worth it. What's happening here is so off the charts. That is incredible. And, and you know, it's really one of history's great might-have-beens when you think about it. This is in 1940, years before the Holocaust and the full scale of the extermination practices of the Nazis came into effect in the camp. Um, a million of the camp's victims were still alive. And, um, you know, what would have happened had the Allies taken action at that stage? And as, as we know from history, um, you know, the, the camps were not... Uh attacked by the by the Royal Air Force and uh, understandably that would have been a very difficult mission for them to pull off it was a it was an incredibly difficult mission um, in that winter of 1940 I mean the Brits were at that stage under all-out assault um, known as the Blitz when Hitler ordered cities across the country to be bombed and infrastructure and the RAF's own bomber fleet was down from about 290 planes to um, a little over 100 and bombing in Germany was, you know, it's, it's worth just thinking about this for a moment. They did not have radar, so they had to fly and find their targets uh, by eyesight. So that meant they could only fly on moonlit nights. And um, they, you know, they rarely hit anything that they intended to hit. In fact, they developed this protocol of simply dropping their bombs out the doors after they thought they'd flown long enough to reach their target and then returned again. So it was incredibly, it would have been incredibly hard to hit Auschwitz, which was at the furthest limit of what um, their aircraft could reach at that stage. But I think what it might have done, what it could have done, would have been to establish at the very early point uh, in the war, the principle of retaliation for humanitarian crimes by the Nazis. And it may be that they didn't hit Auschwitz or they only caused uh, minor damage, but they would doctrine, as it were, for taking action that I think could have really led to um, to the destruction of Auschwitz over time as the British capabilities built up and the Americans entered the war. Um, but that, that didn't happen. Um, the Brits judged that Auschwitz was too risky and um, they needed to focus on bombing targets as best they could in, in Germany. 
So that left uh, Vitold to uh, continue organizing and continue reporting. His network within the camp grew. Uh, how extensive did it become? So, I mean, Paletsky had no idea the decision-making of the RAF headquarters. I mean, he would have sort of guessed that there were issues because there was no immediate response to his reporting. But he kept on reporting, kept on expanding the underground. Um, yeah, his, it's worth noting they don't know what's going on really in the broader war, do they? They, they, they managed to steal a radio and set it up secretly in um, this makeshift camp hospital. So at night, um, when the SS guards have gone to their posts or have left the camp, they get to tune in to the BBC and catch up on the wars, the wars events. Um, so they, they had some sense of the, the broader war and that it wasn't going very well for the Allies. Um, but it's also the case that, you know, they were very isolated beyond a few bulletins and what new arrivals could, could tell them. Uh, so Pilecki was operating in, in something of a, of a vacuum. He never got uh, a message directly from the Warsaw Underground acknowledging what he was up to, but he, you know, he had his head down. He was, you know, working around the clock how you know thinking about how to expand the underground how to keep reporting how to really figure out what the the nazis were up to because whilst the camp had begun as this um internment facility for polish political prisoners um it began to ch change over the course of 1941 and um it also began to darken and become you know, increasingly violent um, as the Nazi leadership in the camp responded to uh, to some of the issues that the terrible conditions in the camp had created. So what happened was that the numbers of sick prisoners in the camp just kept expanding. I mean, they weren't getting enough food, there was disease, there was the outbreak of typhus. And so the uh, the camp authorities began experimenting with different methods of euthanizing sick prisoners. Um, and this was, in some ways, the first step towards mass murder in Auschwitz. Um, there were similar experiments happening in other concentration camps, but there was always uh, something particularly um, aggressive and, and um innovative uh, in what the SS in Auschwitz were doing. And in that summer of 1941, Germany invaded the Soviet Union, um, a huge turning point in the war and actually a huge turning point in Auschwitz's history because um, Himmler, the SS chief, uh, signed an agreement with the German Wehrmacht to bring um, 100,000 Soviet POWs to Auschwitz, um, you know, in a Flash, transforming the potentially the complexion of the of the camp, and it also presented a challenge for the SS because they um, had decided that they needed to weed out any possible communist agents among the prisoners. So um, what that meant was finding means to start 
killing a lot of Soviet POWs quickly. And this came, this collided with this euthanasia program of sick prisoners that summer. And that was the summer in which the Nazis created the first gas chamber in Auschwitz, not for uh, Jewish families, that was to come, but um, as a means to quickly kill sick prisoners and Soviet POWs. And Pilecki, he's right there watching all of this. He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to report on what's happening. Um, There's a, you know, that first gassing uh, was done 100 yards from him, from every prisoner in the camp, in one of the basements. And um, 256 prisoners were led, were dragged into the rooms there. Um, 600 odd Soviet POWs showed up that evening and were led also into the basement. And then the SS men uh, dropped um, pellets of Zyklon B gas, which was a pesticide used for killing lice in the camp, but was also highly toxic and the prisoners the testimonies that i came across are really some of the most harrowing uh, i th- i think i've i've ever read you know just describing the screams of the dying men the ss hadn't used enough zyklon b this is again one of those experiments um you know that they had yet to uh, perfect their killing and so they had to go back in with more Zyklon B as these men were dying and gasping um, around them and um, it wasn't until almost 24 hours passed that they could be sure that everyone was dead and then the prisoner nurses who worked in the makeshift camp hospital had to drag the bodies all the way through the camp to the crematorium 800 bodies um, to be burnt and you know Pletsky heard those screams and um, realized that something new and terrible had happened in the camp. And that's what he had to figure out exactly what, and then he had to get that message to Warsaw. Yeah, uh, and at one point in the book, you write about uh, the workers who had been charged with carrying out these executions uh, in, in such mass numbers, and also uh, disposing of of the bodies after they were finished. And and you write about them uh, eventually committing suicide uh, due to uh, all the horrors that they had seen. You know, even reading this just as a secondhand spectator, I I mean, the the book is excellent, and I'm very glad to have read it. But, you know, I'll I'll admit that it uh, it was emotionally difficult to read and and so i'm wondering um how how challenging was this for you to write um it 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 was challenging and i think like a lot of your listeners um i had struggled with the holocaust i guess throughout my life as soon as i heard about it at school it's you know this great act of evil that um you know exists, you know it's there, but you know how do you get your head around it? And I think whenever I struggled with the material, um, it was Paletsky and his story that you know would drag me out of the doldrums. He is such a sort of blaze of light through the camp. His 
courage and heroism uh, that, you know, it sort of drags you through. You know, you're not seeing the murder from the eyes of the victims. You're seeing it through this really remarkable perspective that was so fresh to me that through the eyes of this protagonist who was there to take down the camp. And so whilst he is witnessing these horrific acts of, uh, of mass murder, he is at the same time coming up with schemes to assassinate SS officers, to like set up a, uh, a radio station in the camp to broadcast messages um, out there. He's organizing some incredible escapes. Um, at a certain point, he decides that they just need to get reports out there because what's happening is so extreme and that's worth the the danger of um of an escape and so um you know he comes up with increasingly ingenious methods to um get his messengers out of the camp so he's you know he's this problem solving ingenious you know brilliantly subversive figure that um for me um, you know, helped me through the camp. You know, he was my he was my guide, and I guess in the same way that I was describing how Con, that prisoner, was recruited and made to realize that something um, through that Paletsky's act of trust was made to realize that something greater could endure in the camp. Um, I felt it too. You know, the Auschwitz was the place where the very worst the man can do to man occurred um, but to my surprise to my shock uh, it was also the place where some of the greatest acts of heroism took place and I think that's that's ultimately how I got through writing the book so how long does it take uh, Vitold to put together exactly what the Nazis are doing that that it's really uh an industrial scale, racial and ethnic genocide. And how long does it take him to, to get that information to the allies? So he, um, he's struggled a bit to get his head around the Holocaust. I mean, it's, you know, it's easy now for us with the benefit of history to understand it, but this was something quite unprecedented uh, in human history, industrialized mass murder. And um, Pilecki, um it, it took him a while to figure out what the Nazis were up to, uh, or rather he understood what they were up to, but to understand the logic, like what was making them kill so many people. And um, he initially thought, his, his, one of his first messengers from the camp bearing news of the Holocaust, um, he told him that, uh, it must be because uh, the, the, the Jewish families were being brought to the camp to be killed because the Nazis wanted to steal their gold and jewels to that they were bringing to fund the war efforts. Which it was it was true. I mean, they were take the Nazi were taking um, the belongings of um, of those they murdered and sending them to the Reich, and that did include you know money and um you know precious items but of course that wasn't why why the nazis were killing um jewish families and um he kept pushing away at it and eventually he did understand he did get his 
head around the act of genocide. Of course, he didn't have the word that we have, the Holocaust, to describe it. Um, in his uh, reports, he just called it a new nightmare, um, which um, I think um, certainly does capture from Palecki's perspective what was what was happening. Um, so over that summer, um, as uh, of 42, as Jewish families start to arrive on this massive scale um, to um, a satellite camp to Auschwitz called Birkenau. It was about two miles away um, where there was dedicated gas chambers and Jewish families were separated between workers who were registered in the main camp and those, the children and the elderly who were sent led immediately to be gassed. Um, Pileski got his head around what was happening and um, that was the point at which he organized one of the most amazing escapes in the camp's history. I think probably any concentration camp's history Four prisoners, including his courier, broke into an SS warehouse during a lunch break, dressed in SS uniforms that were stored there, then walked over to the garage of Commandant Hearst, took one of his cars, and dressed as SS men, just drove out of the camp gate. And um, it, you know, they saw the deputy commandant riding by on his horse and struck him a Heil Hitler. He Heil Hitler back and off they went. And uh, Pilecki describes the scene uh, that evening as that deputy commandant realizes that four men are missing and that indeed he had actually seen them and saluted them. Um, he threw his cap down and started swearing and um, and then burst into a sort of cackle of laughter. Um, Paletsky, of course, enjoyed the moment immensely. And I think it's, you know, it's part of what I found so fascinating about the book is that you have this horrific act um, that's taking place. And then you have this just brilliance of Paletsky and, and other prisoners in uh, taking risks to expose it. And um, I think what I also found just captivating about this, about this research was it turned out that one of those escapers who had dressed as in the SS uniform was still alive. And I got to meet him. He was 96 years old, living in Gdansk, Poland. And I met him and he told me the story of his escape in the most amazing detail and um uh, you know, it's it's amazingly moving to hear people talk about Paletsky who knew him and talk about these great acts of, of daring do. Um, this prisoner, Kazimierz Piechowski, he died six months later. So I got to be one of his very last interviews. And um, it's uh, it was it was very poignant. And and, and actually, he. He was able to identify who Paletsky's messenger was at the point at which in the escape group and the point at which he left them to go and talk to uh, to the underground leadership in Warsaw. And that allowed me to then track down the report, um, you know, one of these missing reports and to really show what Paletsky was thinking about, what he was trying to achieve in the camp. 
What a remarkable privilege for you to be able to meet one of the survivors and hear their stories about Vitold. It, it, it happens so it happens so many times. I mean, that generation in the 80s and 90s, I mean, they could not talk about Palevsky during the communist era for reasons I think we'll go on to to talk about. So in many cases, I was talking to them and they were answering my questions about Palevsky for the first for the first time. And um, I took, for example, Paletsky's nephew. Um, he was the boy who was in the apartment when Paletsky volunteered. Um, he was three years old at the time. He's um, you know, in his mid-80s now. I met up with him, took him back to that apartment where Paletsky volunteered for uh, his mission. It's the first time he'd been back in... 80 years because the communists had taken the apartment over at the end of the war. And the act of being back in that place brought back the memory of that teddy bear on the, on the floor. Um, you know, that's not in any, any, any book. That was just that moment having Marek, his, his name, Marek, back in that space and just talking through his memories. He was only three, but he remembered that teddy bear. And he remembered that, you know, the fear of that of that morning. And um, I got to speak to um, you know, 20 plus um, folk who are still alive with these with these sort of memories. And, um, you know, wherever possible, they would come with me uh, to the places in the story that still exist, like the apartment um, like the the safe house that Pletsky escaped to um, at the end of his time in the camp, and they shared with me what they could remember, and really allowed me to follow in Pletsky's footsteps, which seemed really important to me. Both in a way, I think as a biographer, you want to get as close as possible to your subject, um, but in the case of Pletsky, when his writings are somewhat patchy and there are big gaps um, when he wrote after um, after the war about his experiences. There were things he chose not to write about because he didn't want to expose his friends um, to danger of the communist regime. Um, so um, following in his footsteps was really a way to um, to find and discover elements of his story that might you might miss otherwise and it just became it became a, a very uh, touching experience um you know in terms of recreating his footsteps and finding families who um who would remember Paletsky. I, I recreated Paletsky's escape from the camp and uh, he names a few of the villages he stayed in, and I visited those villages and found these 80-plus-year-old men and women who were like, oh, yeah, I was a kid, but I remember when Paletsky came and stayed with my family after escaping from the camp. And, you know, they would then describe how they, so the family gave them some, sheltered them, and, you know, it's just one of those moments when you're, hearing about Paletsky being sheltered and given food and tea by the family and you yourself are sitting there 
in the same room in the same house with the same people also being given tea and tea and cake as is the um, delightful way of Polish um, hospitality and um, and shadowing um, shadowing your subject so um, it was yeah it was very um, it was it was I by the end of the research I felt that I had gained some insights into Paletsky and I also felt this just you know a huge support and huge um, and a huge desire from those I'd spoken to to really tell his story in a way that um, hadn't been done before. Well, that, that, that's what I think is one of the strengths of your book is it's really on the ground level and it's not very far removed from those first person accounts at all. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, there's a lot of incredible histories of the Holocaust and of, about Auschwitz that I, of course, had to turn to in the writing of the book. My aim wasn't to sort of write another history book. Um, I felt that Paletsky's story was, you know, one that had been hidden for decades that the communists had deliberately suppressed. And, you know, it was a story that would benefit that really needed to be told from Paletsky's experience because Paletsky was a witness to the steps by which the Nazis reached the final solution in Auschwitz. And he was the guy, the first guy in the camp in subsequent history to really piece together those steps and, um, so whilst I wanted to tell Paletsky's personal journey, um, there is this you know, very important historical dimension to what he was doing, that you know, that personal story, that historical importance you know, lost, and um, that's uh, why it needs to be told. My last question for you is, what has been the legacy of what he did? What's been the history of the Vitold Report? So, briefly, Paletsky escaped the camp. It's, um, I think your listeners will just love that story. It's as dramatic as anything else in the book, and one in which I you know, very closely reported it. Um, and I think um, you, will, you will feel like you yourself are escaping the camp. Um, Paletsky went on to then try his best to rally a force to attack Auschwitz from the outside. And he, he turned first to um, to those around the camp, and then he went to Warsaw, um, and he could not get anyone to uh, really buy into his scheme. And one of the reasons for that was that the war was changing at this point and the Soviets were rapidly rolling back the Germans and the Soviets seemed like they were about to occupy Poland. And that then became the, um, the main focus of the underground at that stage was not um, German crimes, but the, the very real threat of um, that the Soviets posed. And Paleski gets sucked into the, into the Warsaw uprising this huge battle in the final days of uh, the German occupation and um, it's uh, he ends up in in a German prisoner of war camp once again um, 
Um, but by the end of the war, Poland is occupied by the Soviets. Pelecki goes back to fight against them once again, creating an intelligence gathering operation um, to try and inform the Allies about communist crimes in the country. Uh, this time he is captured um, and put on a show trial. Um, it's, you know, very, it's a, it was tough to write about, um, you know, when you think about this guy who had risked so much to try and save so many lives, and yet here he is being brutally tortured and being called an enemy of the state and a traitor. And um, he is ultimately executed. And the reason why you haven't heard about Paletsky is that all of his reports that survived were locked away in the communist archives. Um, the communists did not want his story out there. They did not want his inspirational story um, spreading and creating trouble for them. So it really wasn't until the 90s that when the Iron Curtain fell and the archives opened up that the family and scholars were able to get to grips with Paletsky's exploits. Um, so, um, you know, in terms of legacy of Vitold's reports, um, my hope is that this book will really establish the historical importance of what he was doing in the camp by showing for the first time how he was able to live report on the Holocaust from Auschwitz. Um, really extraordinary stuff. Um, but I think his legacy goes beyond that in some ways. I mean, his legacy is this story of standing up to the greatest evil that mankind has ever perpetrated and finding a way to resist. And, you know, I think that's a message that, and a legacy that um, we can always need, always turn to, that we, that we need now, perhaps more than at any point in the last few decades. Um, you know, how do you keep your moral compass in a world that's changing around you? And Paletsky provides the answer to that. His reports provide the answer to that. And um, it was really my great sort of privilege to be able to uh, spend three, four years with him and trying to uh, present his story um, for a wider audience. Well, Jack, thank you for a fascinating and uh, powerful discussion today. Um, if someone wanted to read this inspiring story or wanted to learn more, where can they go? Um, they can go to their local bookseller, I hope, and um, and ask for the book. Um, of course, it is available with Amazon and other online retailers, but I um, always encourage uh, people to turn to their local bookstores um, as a way to um, support writers like myself. All right, well... Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Jack Fairweather, for coming on the program today. And thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about Jack's book, The Volunteer, check out the link in the description of this episode in your podcast app. 
And then if you would like to check out some supplemental content, head on over to the show notes for this episode at www.cmtuhistory.com. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. I will see you guys back here in three weeks on October 1st for our very first ever Patrons Pick episode. I have handed over the programming reins to the show's Patreon patrons, and they have decided who's going to come on the show, and they definitely made a good choice. I'm really looking forward to it and can't wait. I'll see you then.